Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by herdmate Brian Sanders, who I haven't had the chance to speak with for a while. It's mm-hmm. It's been a while since we met in a Portland uh, room and did some interviewing there. How long ago was that? Oh, wow. That must have been over two years ago. Yeah, we uh, got you in the Food Lies film up in a Airbnb in a, in a little sort of hotel room looking thing with uh, with a nice background. It was cool. Mm-hmm. That was fun. Um, so that was for your full length documentary film Food Lies. So- yeah, yeah, that's my main project. It got me started three and a half years ago, and I've been kind of doing it ever since and a lot of things have popped up since then so i would introduce you as a filmmaker food lies you also did a very nice uh um refutation of uh another um work of fiction um (laughs) that was released uh called game changers um, and, and I recommend that people look for your, um, debunking of, of that on YouTube. And we can talk about that coming up. You also have a podcast peak human podcast. How long have you been doing that now? Well, the same length as I've been working on the film, I guess I started grabbing interviews with people when I interviewed them for the film and, uh, yeah, you were one of the early episodes and got a, about 121 other ones. Mm. Congratulations. Um, But if you, you know, uh, Mm. it's cliche, but remember when we used to go to dinner parties and and now that you've Mm -hmm. moved, maybe you can do that again. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, But remember when we did that, we'd meet people in social gatherings. How would you introduce yourself? Oh, wow. Yeah. I kind of just pick something new each time. You know, maybe I could just make something up, just make up some wacky one, like cartographer, you know, no, no, I, I actually don't know. I try to uh, make, you know, see where the, the word, the, like what they may be interested in and kind of head down that direction and try to stray away from food in the beginning, because talking about food gets people riled up and they, uh, it's very personal, right? It's like an identity. And so a lot of the work I do is revolved around food and what to eat. And it's fun because everyone has something to say about food and what to eat. Everyone has an opinion. Obviously, you have to eat every day. So it's fun talking to a lot of people. Every you know Uber driver I've ever <laughs> been in the car with, I seem to get into a discussion with. And so, um, yeah, I, I just, just I'm in the health world. I, I just start with that I'm in the health world. And then I see where it goes from there. And I, yeah, I work with a doctor, Dr. Gary. We had a, we have a practice in LA 
uh, with Sapien, you know, I do the podcast as filmmaker, um, health coach. I don't know. I have a mechanical engineering background. Indeed. You engineers, when you get anywhere near health and medicine, something interesting happens. I, I love it. Um, there, there's Maybe it's just a happy coincidence, and these there's, are who I've met. Well, yeah. Dr. Ted Naiman used to be an engineer. We have Ivor Cummins. We have Dave Feldman, and there's more. It's, Michael it's Eads. To, yep. Yeah, just going to the root cause I think Jay Wartman as well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, what, where, where's the data? You know, if, yeah, root cause, <laughs> like, well, so wait, why, why would meat be bad for us if we've been eating it for all of history? Tell me that again. You know, <laughs> we have some questions here. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed, we do. Um, now, watching a relatively recent presentation of yours, I wasn't aware of, um, the personal story. So what, what was it that got you from mechanical engineer to health coach, filmmaker, podcaster, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Well, it's a half personal, half sad story about my parents. Um, they kind of succumbed to these chronic diseases that everyone seems to get in the Westernized nations, right? They Alzheimer's and cancer. So I ended up at 30, 31 with no parents. Uh, that was six years ago. I'm 37 now. So I've been on this journey ever since. And just, I, you know, the deeper I dug into it, I realized that we don't have to die of these things. And these things aren't normal. I mean, I just went to Africa. We could talk about that. And, and it was definitely not normal. They, The people, you know, live long and strong and then they die. And then the, the more they get into the westernized foods, the shorter their lifespan is or shorter their health span is. So yeah, I kind of caught on to this stuff and started eating more ancestral, you know, diet. You know, I got into Mark Sisson and all that type of stuff and made some simple changes to my diet. Some people around me were doing the same thing uh, back then and just amazing results. You know, they, the results speak for themselves. And I was like, wow, there's gotta be something more to this. And I, I just kept going deeper and, and pretty soon I just realized that I just needed to make a film. I was so into it. I, you know, I just dug into it so much and I kind of grew up in film and I just saw the game, uh, not the game changers, the previous film, what the health, right. That came out about three and a half years ago, or I saw it about three and a half years ago. And that was the day I decided I'm like, well, something has to be done. This is the exact opposite. Everything they're spelling out here is the exact opposite of what I've just witnessed and what I know. And I need to sort of make a counter film. So that's how it started. Well, and so we have a personal sort of point of, of uh, contact in the sense that, you know, I lost my mother and my father in the same year when I turned 13, both died of cancer um, and, mm. um, you know, alcoholism and mental illness had broken that relationship apart six years earlier, but, um, yeah. So, uh, when I heard you mention that it was, uh, yes, this is a reality for far too many people, given what the information that we get exposed to when we listen to various researchers and clinicians, uh, are suggesting. And then, as you mentioned, we look around the world Unfortunately, what we see as a reality currently in the U.S. is now 
a growing reality in other parts of the world. So people have referred to plagues of prosperity and it's well, but it's low and middle income countries too. It's, it's not merely in, you know, us of a or Western Europe. Well, it's just industrialized foods. I mean, I don't think, yeah, it matters like the economy or the, the wealth of the nation. It's just when they get in these foods and yeah, most people listening probably know Weston Price, right? This is what he found a hundred years ago is that when the, the modern foods came in, that's when the disease and everything else followed. And specifically, I think it would be refined carbohydrates and oils from seeds, not the traditional oils from plants, olives and avocados or coconut oil, but the, these, as you said, industrial oils. That's it. And the more I dig into it, the more I find it's, it's really these two things. So the the refined grains and sugars and the seed oils and it's great is there's a whole bunch of new science that are, is just proving this out. You know, he did a bunch of great science, whatever he could back in the day, he was doing this in the thirties, traveling the world and, you know, looking at people's teeth and doing stuff like that. But now it's kind of all proven out. That, that's why I love him so much. It's not just, you know, I, I get a lot of weird kind of vegan commenters on my different social media stuff I do. And yeah, they'll be like, Oh, well that was like an anecdotal thing or this or that. I'm like, well, it was, but it was also proven out <laughs> through the last, you know, hundred years of science. Mm-hmm. Well, at some point, there will never be the highest quality evidence in free living human beings. There, there's just too many variables. You can't do that kind of work for ethical reasons, and and to act as if we need that before also ignores the fact that we didn't have it to make the changes that we have up till now. So, you know, why suddenly should, sorry, the game be changed uh-huh. um, to yeah. demand something that was, yeah, I'm sorry, that wasn't required to put us on this trajectory in the first place. It's a great point. Yeah. And we're never going to have the hard evidence. It's just, I think it's just impossible, but we can look at the the whole body of evidence, or I like to call it, I mean, like the six lines of evidence, there's, there's kind of six main lines that we're looking at through the film. And if you look at all of those, you kind of do get the best picture you can get of what the truth is, right? You have to look at evolution and our human body and the gut morphology and our teeth and all this type of stuff. And the vegans try to do that, but <laughs> they just do it wrong. It's so funny. They're really weak arguments about, oh, we don't have canines, so we shouldn't eat meat. And it's really funny when you, you get into those type of arguments. But if we look at the, yeah, possible <laughs> thumbs. Now, if you, if you look at the evolution, you can look at our, yeah, our, how our bodies change. You can look at just, I mean, we can look at modern hunter-gatherers. We can look at the, just the science. You, you just put everything together and that's, you, you come up with an answer that, you know, we don't need a double-blind placebo-controlled trial of, 10 million people, which we're never going to do. Well, and, and more and more, I mean, N equals one, how many people have to replicate this experience of reversing chronic conditions by following an effective lifestyle intervention before people are just made aware, this is possible for you. You can do this too. Yeah. And that's, and that's so true. And 
I mean, there's also, there's other ways to do it too. I always like to talk about that. And, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't debunk this way to do it. I mean, you can lose weight on any diet if you just cut calories enough. And that doesn't mean you're going to get the proper nutrition and proper protein and you're not going to be able to sustain it. So uh, yeah, I've never really seen, you know, the, I guess I'll call it an ancestral eating pattern. I, I don't even like to call it by a diet and you, you don't have to necessarily, you know, like go super low carb or anything, but if, if as long as you're eating ancestrally and following these principles, uh, I've never seen anything to debunk that. And yeah, some people can, yeah, you can, you can just eat some plants and lose some weight <laughs> that, mm. that again, it, it doesn't mean you're healthy or, um, it's optimum. Well, yeah. Another phrase I've heard is species appropriate diet, which allows us to reuse the SAD acronym, which <laughs> um, usually stands for standard American diet, um, which is in fact sad at this point. What is it? Almost 60% of our calories come from sugar, flour, oil. Well, the sugar, flour, yeah, well, oil. So grains, I, yeah, grains, yeah, plant lipids, and, and, and added sugars. Yeah. Basically, yes. Yeah. So that's a, so I call it the sapien diet, which <laughs> is just all just around the world, those ancestral diets that, that work. And actually in the film, we do call them the SAD three. So the SAD, so we refer to the SAD diet, but we also, it's seed oils, added sugar and deficient grains. So we even tack on the deficient grains part. I mean, it works with the D obviously, but it, it does make a point. If you want to talk about Western price again, that people do eat grains, you know, some people can eat them in a healthy way and that's with not monocropped grains covered in glyphosate that's slow fermented it's uh sprouted soaked you know there is a way to eat some grains in a way that's not gonna you know fill your body with anti-nutrients or uh, you know and some people uh choose to not do that like myself even though i know i could get some slow fermented well product. i guess the other i guess the other question there though is what we maybe could have eaten at one point having been insulted to whatever degree metabolically can we eat that way now, now? right i mean it, it, at some point um shifts may have occurred beyond what we typically look at um i, I i've heard lots of people talking about various nutrient levels in foodstuffs and part of that gets confused by and I've heard you talk about it, but the idea that you can list elemental contents or nutrients in plant source foods and animal source foods, and depending on how you express them, you might think that they are meaningful equivalents when in fact they're not. Um, so they list protein on a label. It's not protein, it's crude protein. Yep. And therefore, that value is very different depending on which source it's coming from. And you could do the same thing with nutrients, uh, uh, minerals or vitamins or um, uh, calories for that matter. I mean, shoot, calories coming from animal source foods have a different metabolic effect than calories coming from plants. Yeah, that this stuff is super important. It's super nuanced. No one wants to get into this level of detail, right? People just want... A, a diet and just call it a name and tell me some rules and I'll do it. And, you know, that's a bit of the problem making this film. It's, it's taking a while, 
but all films take a while. That stupid Game Changers film took five years to make, and they had you know millions of dollars at their disposal. So we're trying to figure out how to tell this story you're talking about. We're talking about bioavailability. We're talking about like you know the different forms of vitamins, like vitamin A, and you know you're you're not going to get the same vitamin A from carrots. This is a precursor, beta carotene, not you know actual retinol. So that just using the words retinol and preformed and bioavailability. This is going to blow past a lot of the audience and we're going for that mainstream, you know, this is, should be on Netflix. We have a distribution company lined up that wants to, you know, help us distribute it to the world and get it on places such as Netflix. But yeah, I mean, unless someone's listening to an hour podcast, getting into these details, they're not going to know or care about them. So it is a challenge. Mm, Indeed. And, And as you said, everybody gets interested in food. It's a personal thing. Unfortunately, for some people, it becomes supra personal. It is how they define themselves, right? Their identity. Yeah. I mean, it's, I I like to look at that, that concept or or why that happens, I guess, because I get attacked by them. So it, it is interesting to me to, to learn more about it. I, and I know vegans and I kind of, I actually was friends with a vegan. This was this was a miracle. I was friends with a girl who I did not know she was vegan. She did not announce that she was vegan. And she was just a cool, normal person. And then a few months later, you know, I played beach volleyball back in LA. And and fi- at the end, she I she she was vegan. And then she wasn't crazy. And she's she followed my food lies account. And now, you know, maybe she'll open her mind a little bit. But it seems like a lot of these other people have a similar story of some sort of thing that that went on in their background, their past, or some sort of reason why they were um, so just obsessed with death or obsessed with uh, protecting animals. There might be this protective thing where, well, if someone, I wasn't protected, but I can protect the animals. There's something to do with the disconnect from nature or being disconnected from nature. I think is a, a big aspect to that. Um, if we're, you know, we're in cities, it's like, it's kind of hard to be connected to nature, right? I mean, I wish I was more connected to nature. I, I moved to Austin now. Yeah. Now I can, you know, go, go jump in the river and be closer to nature, but most people can't, most people don't know how animals are raised. They don't know how animals, you know, have to die for us to live. So that, that's a big part of the film as well. And so we're going to go into that side and talk about the ethics and this circle of life. And, and we went up to Canada, actually filmed with a great woman, Tara Couture, who you may be familiar with. She's a farmstead, you know, operator. She just grows all her own food. She's an amazing, amazing person. So amazing. She had to get off Instagram. It was, it was just, she, she did a lot of great work on there and had to leave, but she talks a lot about this stuff. And she talks about how she would have to destroy just so much nature, so much beautiful life around her to grow plant food there and, and crops, but with, without killing anything. And by adding to the biodiversity of her surroundings, she can grow animals. And she has cattle in the fields, you know, silvopasture. She has ducks. She has meat rabbits. She has chickens she has all kinds of things going on and they're all 
adding to nature and the biodiversity and life. And so I'll end my rant here with one great quote that she said, uh, referring to a, a, a plate of, of a vegan plate of food. It, it's death on a plate. There's just no blood. Mm-hmm. And so there, there, there always is death associated with the growing food. There's always energy associated with producing food. And to me, the anti-meat crowd just wants to ignore that. And they think that they're bypassing the system by just eating plants when they're just not really accounting for all the death and the energy it took to grow that food. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Hawaii. Really? So yeah, I grew up um, in nature. I mean, but we weren't eating natural foods. It's kind of interesting because I actually was grew up on the low fat diet, eating all the grains and cereal and pasta and lean chicken breast. And uh, I think, yeah, I think I had some some sort of poor outcomes because of that. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I guess one of the interesting things for us to explore is a lot of what you just in your rant, and it wasn't mm-hmm. a rant, but mm-hmm. in, in that previous answer, a lot of what you were saying is common knowledge within my agricultural tribes, right? Mm-hmm. Not a surprise. Now, we live in a world where the vast majority of people in the United States do not make their living from producing food. Mm-hmm. They, they are not, in that sense, dependent on directly on their own labor to produce their food. Um, what is it? Somewhere 70, 80% of U.S. population lives in urban areas. And that's the trend globally, that in 30 years, it'll be 70% globally. So there's a reason for that. Okay, we, we're not going to go back to some agrarian history. That's, that's not going to happen for a number of reasons. Um, but how can we communicate better? Because like I say, some of this isn't news to some of us. And yet it's, it is brand new information that absolutely needs to be heard by the majority of the public. Well, yeah, it's, it's super important. I'd like to just repeat it a lot. So yeah, maybe your audience already knew everything I just said, but yeah, hopefully there's some new people listening, but I mean, that's kind of the whole point of making a film. I thought of all the different things that I could do and there's many great books out there and there's many amazing podcasts and all that stuff, but that people aren't going to do that. The normal person we want to reach that you're referring to doesn't go listen to your podcast or my podcast. They just do TikTok or something. I don't know what they do. They, they, so we need to reach them where they're at and that's Netflix. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that's the only solution I have is just put all of this information in the most digestible form to use a, a fun food analogy there, uh, just get it there so they can watch it visual, get all the studies on the screen, get the, the cool infographics that explain it, uh, you know, spend two hours, uh, it might be a little too long, but that's as long as we're trying to cut it down from about three hours. And, and yeah, that's, that's the best we can do, I think. Well, and if, if you have a strategy, maybe some of it becomes, you know, the second helping, um, you you don't have to, it it doesn't have to not be used, but like you say, what is, uh, an acceptable 
amount of, per serving. Um, and absolutely, video is a remarkable vehicle for telling stories. And I think we just have to get, all of us have to get better at telling stories and finding those points where people can connect into it. And, and one of my thoughts is, you know, everybody eats, right? And, and most people are concerned about their health. I think I got the idea from Lierre Keith that it's, it's completely normal for people to be concerned about their health. It's rational to be concerned about the environment. It's, it's commendable to be concerned about others and animal welfare, not animal rights. And yet you couple those legitimate concerns with bad information, you make bad decisions. Mm, that's a great recap. I guess she, she's amazing. If that's her sort of thoughts, it's, it's exactly right. Mm. I, that certainly is my impression from, from having read The Vegetarian Myth. It's been a while since I read the book. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's my position that some amount of animal source food is essential in the human diet for proper development and function. Now, that doesn't have to be meat. That can be, you know, eggs, dairy, seafood, meat. Um, and there's lots of reasons behind that. But so, so that kind of makes things break down in my mind to you can have one of three categories of dietary strategy. You can be a carnivore, you can be a vegan, which is all animal source, no animal source, or you can be an omnivore. And I'm, I'm wondering why we keep using this word vegetarian, which is that, you know, are, are people trying to feel better about eating animal source food, but not meat, you know, so, hey, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not, I don't know. But the reality is that too few people, too many people in the world don't get the animal source food that they need. It's, it's a huge point. And it's just so strange. It's, it's happens when we run out of problems, I think, in America. But yeah, traveling abroad, traveling to Africa, it was a great way to really see that firsthand and understand that these people are living day to day trying to get me like their whole thing is how can I get more animal source nutrition? It's like, why I have a job is so I can get more animal source nutrition. It's like, so I can, I need to get the money to get this chicken so I can have eggs. Like we had to do, we actually started a little um, Indiegogo and a fund and a charity. It's not officially a charity, but called Cows for Kids, actually with Mary and I for, when we went to Africa. And we're all we're trying to do is sort of group fund cows for these villages because they just don't have it. That all they want is a cow to put milk in their porridge. They have this thing called ugali. And it's just a mixture of like corn flour and water. And actually we went and saw this school and they had a shed with their food and it was a little sacks of sugar, some jugs of vegetable oil and a big uh, trash can full of, of refined grains, which is funny, it was corn flour. It was the exact three things that Western Price was talking about. And this is all they had to eat. So it's just interesting that half the world's, well, by numbers, you know, probably the majority of the world is out there trying to get more meat and more animal foods in their diet and then I guess there's a small vocal minority that's trying to tell people to eat less or none. And it's, I don't know, I guess it's just kind of 
funny, <laughs> ironic, uh, confusing. The cognitive dissonance is just, it's very interesting or, yeah. Hmm. And, and uh, having interacted with researchers, people working at things like the International Livestock Research Institute um, in Kenya, um, the Livestock Innovation Lab at uh, uh, University of Florida, people who are trying to sustainably increase intensification of livestock agriculture to produce the products that people in low and middle income countries need. And I came across this line that, you know, to feed these nations out of poverty, which that line I really like, as mm -hmm. opposed to the competing messages, which are, you know, livestock agriculture has no place in sustainable agriculture or sustainable development. And, uh, again, these, these contradictory messages that um, when you tease them apart, you find they're just not well-founded scientifically. It, it's so true. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's uh, extra scary is over there in Africa, they're getting this propaganda message and it's creeping into their, their thoughts. So, we talk to them and they would say, yeah, our, our older people, our older generation ate animal foods and we're healthy and we're strong and we lived long and we died. They had all these messages of, of that and that the younger generations are doing worse and they're getting sick and all this stuff. And, and they, they don't trust the shelf-stable foods. It was interesting to see, they're like, oh, I don't trust this food. They didn't know that it wasn't healthy per se, but they're like, oh, they were suspect of oils that could sit in a container on a shelf and flour that would just sit around forever there. But then they, this message was creeping in that, and they said, well, but our doctors tell us that meat is bad for us. And I asked them, you know, I asked all, we went to, you know, many different tribes and they, they all kind of had this message creeping in and they, they couldn't put it together. So they said, yeah, yeah, we try to eat less meat. And I'm like, I'm like what? So you're just telling me, that all of your elders live long and strong and all this stuff. And then the new people, the younger people are eating all the, the new foods and the grains. They, they just can't put it together because maybe it's this, this is the doctor. This is the guy in the white coat. We're some, you know, we're a villager or like, we're, what do we know? <laughs> you know, maybe they have that attitude. I don't know, but it's, it's sad that it's making it all the way over there and you can see it undoing their health. And what was really interesting to me is we also went to Uganda. So we went to T Tanzania to spend time with the Maasai and the Hadza. We also went to Uganda uh, and we spent time with the pygmies over there, the Batwa, and they're pushed out of their forest. And they, uh, so Uganda is very poor nation. Uh, they do not have fast food there. They, I mean, they maybe have a couple like at the airport, you know, for tourists, but they do not eat fast food. They cannot afford fast food. They do not have sodas and candy and all that stuff that they can't afford that. I mean, I guess I'm making a lot of generalizations from my brief time there, but I saw people eating whole foods. This is what they could afford. This is what they had. They went to markets. It was all whole foods. They had bananas and this and that, and everyone was healthy, right? They, they weren't starving. So there's two kind of myths that I want to bust hopefully with my, you know, brief experience. The, these Places aren't starving. I mean, maybe there's some places in a desert area where they can't grow food that people are starving, but they have ample food. They they grow their own food. They're 
there are you know tons and tons of trees and there's ample calories. It's just the, the quality of the calorie isn't great, but they are doing okay. And when and everyone say under forty seemed healthy, strong. You know they they didn't have even talk about COVID. They didn't really seem to have a big COVID problem in these countries because they seem to be pretty metabolically healthy. You know and and then we kept going around the market. We didn't see treats. Every market I've ever been to in the world, I've traveled around, there's always sweets and treats and sodas and desserts. They didn't have that, right? They had whole foods, but they did have the vegetable oils. They did have these seed oils coming in and they did have the grain, the, the corn flour. And what's interesting about the corn flour is it wasn't properly, there's a five-step process that people in South America developed you know, the Mayans, all these civilizations, they did okay with all the grains because they did nixtamalization, which gets rid of the phytic acids and all the different antinutrients. They didn't do that over in Africa. So they have these grains that were, you know, just had antinutrients, just not ideal. And they had vegetable oils. They had no junk food. They weren't eating candy. Most people in America just think, oh yeah, of course, you know, all these fat people, they just eat junk food and candy and soda and ice cream and that's, and they deserve what they get. That's not what's going on. So the, like, I'm going to repeat myself. They do not have access to these foods. They cannot afford these foods, but they have the oils and they're cooking their chicken in the oil or their, their uh, chapati, I think it's called, with a, the, you know, the flour and they, they make it into pancakes and make it into this pita bread, bread thing hmm. covered in oil. And okay, so under 40, fine. Over 40, just obese, gigantic people that look very sick like Americans. There was many, many women, especially around this market. We didn't see that many men because I guess they weren't, older men weren't market goers, but gigantic people. And so you have to ask, where did this come from? This, this is not McDonald's. This is not being sedentary. You know, this was just these seed oils and the refined grains. In, well, in and there opinion. was a there was a tremendous amount of social uh, disruption in Uganda in the seventies and uh, in late sixties. Um, I know from experience. But indeed, um, the the myth that overeating sedentary behavior produces obesity, which produces chronic disease, that that is a, a, a faulty logic trail. And there's abundant evidence to shift the thinking that obesity is one of the metabolic manifestation or the manifestations of metabolic disruption, not a cause of per se. Exactly. And that it's all just blamed on fast foods or junk food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, yeah. we can't just blame it on that. There, like there's more to it. And, and we have to also think why there's, why do people overeat and get like this it's not you know it's not like these people are the standard americans that just sit around and watch netflix or whatever you want to blame it on right with the westernized countries these were not those people so kind of all the arguments fall apart right That's well even even point. the idea that you just wake up one day and oh my god i'm 100 pounds overweight when did that happen <laughs> it's like no we're aware of that for a long time and yeah. people try to do things about it and fail and then they try again and fail and they try so i mean this is um there there's a lot of mythology but it becomes really denigrating and really abusive at a certain level because 
it's that person's fault as if they hadn't tried to do something better or as yeah. if you haven't if if you had followed my advice it would have worked <laughs> so clearly it's your fault that you know that that's a really important thing that i'm trying to address in the film and i just am obsessed with in general and, and all that i kind of when i talk to all these researchers and scientists and try to figure out it you, it's not just a problem that if you say eat less move more that yeah you're blaming the individual that they didn't do it but there's a deeper issue because no one wants to be fat and sick yet we've ended up here uh, right like so th there's there's more to it and so that and then we're talking about well it's the food supply it's it's the it's the foods right it's like if you are eating certain things they cause these things to happen and against your will right you you no one's trying to just become fat and sick i'll just put it in those maybe crude terms but no but it's it's what you're eating and then that that was even more pronounced when i saw what these people were eating and then what and what all the healthy people were eating or how it catches up to you and that you yeah so you you can't blame it on the individual this is their livelihood like these people are even more inclined to not be quote fat and sick and yet they still ended up this way and so yes it is it is something to do with the quality of the nutrition you're getting and again i think that's really pronounced there that it 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 really comes down to the refined grains and oils well and and I certainly have interacted with researchers that specifically say it's due to a lack of animal source food in their diet. Um, oh, so, it, well, that's the other side of the coin. Sorry to cut you off, but it, it's yes. They, I, I said in the beginning, they didn't have a lack of calories, right? They had tons right. and tons of foods, but yeah, they had. I, I think I heard someone they had an average of seven bananas per day. That's their diet in in Uganda, and so it's like if you're just eating. And we talk to these people a lot. We, we're actually friends with our, our driver who is, yeah, 100 pounds overweight, very excited, very interested in how we were eating because <laughs> we were over there just eating all the meat we could and, and throwing away, you know, all the bananas they gave us. And he was super interested, done amazingly well since we've left. He's, I don't know, down 25 pounds last time I talked to him. And uh, anyway, he what he told us, what he eats and what everyone eats is a whole bunch of mush, basically different versions of mush, ugali or uh, just banana mush or, you know, corn mush. And so, yes, lack of animal foods. Yeah. And, and so, okay. We, we agree on the, the essential, the essential role of animal source food in human diet for proper development and function. Um, and then we get to the question of, okay, so then we've got to produce these animal source foods. And then there's questions about getting them to market because they tend to be more perishable than the plant source foods and mm -hmm. the processed plant source foods, particularly. Um, accessibility, because a lot of those plant source foods could be taken off the shelf and consumed with minimal preparation versus animal source foods. Um, so those are additional considerations to be sure they also tend to be more expensive yet another you know consideration mm -hmm. but just from the production question and as you've gone through this three and a half years of of learning what have you learned about the what i call essential role of ruminant animal 
agriculture and sustainable food systems. Yeah, that that was part of the journey. So yeah, the film does address both sides of this. So I've mentioned a lot of the health side, right? Nutrition is huge, maybe most of it. Uh, we talked about ethical side. And now, yeah, we're talking about the environmental side. And I've, yeah, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. I've traveled around. I've interviewed people like yourself, uh, Joel Salton, lots of different ranches, farmers. Um, we, yeah, talked to the people in, in Africa, all over the world. And basically what I found, I mean, the high level stuff is, is stuff you already kind of know and your audience will know is that the story is not what you've been told and that. It's, it's a lot of just shifting the blame. I guess that, that would be the, the recap of what I found. There, it's a shifting of the blame. So I was once, you know, a clueless young buck just going about my business and thinking cows are destroying the world. You know, I, 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 I believe that. And most people do, because why would you not believe that? That's what everyone says. And then you start peeling back the layers of the onion and you realize, Oh, so it, well, it's definitely not the methane because this, this, and this. It's definitely not the, the carbon because you know animals can put the carbon back in the soil. So you know you keep going and you realize that it's you know, it's a smokescreen. People call it scapegoat. It's whatever you want to call it. It's a very good scapegoat, like, especially cattle. Ruminants are a very good scapegoat because. We've just demonized them. And I'm sure you talked to, you know, Dr. Gary Fetke or his wife, Belinda, about this type of stuff of, you know, why did, why did we start thinking this and the whole Seventh-day Adventist story, Adventist story and all of that? But I don't know. I, it's, it's just a, a, a really cruel tragedy that cows have been the scapegoat or, or cattle been the scapegoat to all of the other problems in the world. That was actually my last presentation. I did one to Beef Australia. Uh, and it, the title was how, how beef or cattle are blamed for some of the world's biggest problems. And they really are the world's biggest problems. We're talking about all of the chronic disease, right? Anything from cancer to Alzheimer's to type 2 diabetes. They're always trying to blame animal foods, especially beef. The climate argument environmental soil destruction water use anything to do with the it's just cows and the healthcare burden and 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 just money the monetary costs so these are seriously some of the world's biggest problems and it, it's just pretty crazy that they try to pin it pin it all on cattle when in our opinion obviously you share this opinion this can reverse all of these problems this is the solution this is not the problem that you know, the problem is the big industry. The problem is the industrial food system and all these other things. And the solution is using ruminant agriculture to fix people's health and fix the environment. So it's, it's sad. It's, it's, I mean, it's frustrating. I'm sure you're, you're just frustrated every day. It, it, it is, I, I, I wrestle with knowing how to address the delusion. You know, how do you best, um, begin the process. Sometimes I, I use I use two analogies. One is of that, you know, multi-strand hemp rope, you know, a nice big thick one. It's mm -hmm. got lots of strands to it. That's these arguments. It looks really substantial. It looks really strong until you untwist it and you begin to test each one of those strands and you find that each one of them breaks. 
And pretty soon you're just left with this little tiny little thing in the middle. And it's like, the, there is no there there, but it's been bundled well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the other that uh, I use is, is the, um, like if you've, if you've split wood and you start with a log that is solid, you know, mm -hmm. and you're coming at the end of it and you start driving that first wedge in and then the cracks appear, right? And so this, the, the, the skinny end of the wedge is that first thing that begins to break open all these other issues. And I think, um, at least my perspective at this point is that that skinny end of the wedge is the fact that 88% of adult Americans don't enjoy optimal metabolic health, right? That, so do you think you're part of the 88 or part of the 12? Mm -hmm. what, what, why? What, what does that mean? Why would that be important? How would you know? Okay. And then if you found out you were part of the 88 instead of the 12 and you wanted to do something about it, what would you do? And at some point then downstream conversations happen, but it's like, make it that, that personal sort of thing. You had your entry. I've had mine, other people, theirs. How do we multiply those personal experiences that then grows the number of people who are, mm -hmm. you know, cognizant and then talking to others or just being an example to someone to, to, follow yeah i mean we just need to grow that number and I, my strategy is actually and it's also one of these other i guess analogies of, of what's going on here is that the anti-meat arguments are very logical when you don't look past the surface level so that's what they have to their advantage is it they they seem sound until you look for more than a second at them right mm -hmm. so you just say Killing animals is bad. It's like hard to argue with, you know, it's like, I, I don't know, I guess so. And they're like, you know, meats, you know, fat's bad. It's like, I guess I heard that. And it's bad for the environment. It takes too many resources. We should just eat plants instead of feeding them to animals first. And, you're, and if you're just, if you don't know anything, it sounds good. It sounds right. And that's the problem is because that's where most people stop. And once you get past any of those surface level arguments, again, they, it unravels. It, it's the rope. So it, it, we're kind of starting from just a bad place, and they'll they'll have like a you know some third world country where an animal is being tortured. Like that's not America, and that's not how things are done. But now you've just shown me that, and now I'm mortified. So mm -hmm. we're always starting sort of um, just off on yeah. the bad foot. Yeah. And yeah. but yeah, and and people society's not set up for nuanced discussions these days so mm. yeah, i understand why it's happening right i understand yeah. why the, this message is out there actually i have one more thing that i, I figured out lately what why this is happening because actually the the host of the beef australia thing asked me what why isn't this message being heard and i think it comes down it all comes down to the profit margins right if you know beef producers are listening i'm a amateur you know beef consumer you know i, I try to sell beef to people. No, my company knows the tales. I, I understand there's no profit in whole foods in selling like well-raised animals, but there is a huge profit in selling cheap crops that are just mashed up and formed into packaged foods. So, you know, you could sell, I, I made a graphic about this. You can have a chicken breast 
and maybe you're going to make 20 cents off that chicken breast. But if you cover it in flour and sugar and oil and you have some chicken nuggets, well, you could make $2 off that. That you can, you can 10x your profit by selling some chicken nuggets in the freezer aisle instead of a chicken breast. So you take the, the world's cheapest ingredients and you have this huge profit margin now. And that's even animal food. I mean, if you just talk about plant foods, there's even a bigger profit margin because they're, they're so cheap. And of course, now they have all the money to do the lobbying, to do the marketing, all the commercials everywhere you look. And they have the money to do the studies even to show that, try, try to show that their foods are, are okay for you. So it's really simple when you look at it that way. Well, of course, this message is not being heard because there's no money in this message. Well, people have said that part, right? There's no money in Whole Foods or there's, a, there's no money in keeping people well. But, but really down to the details, it, it is about the profit margin on different foods and why there's been one beef campaign in the past 20 years that where beef is what's for dinner, you know, and, and that's yeah. it. Yeah. And, and I think that maybe what we could explore is that there is money here. It's just currently being channeled to different places and interests. And there's the opportunity here for money to stay in different places, right? It, it's just a, a, a thought. Um, you know, metabolic illness has an environmental, a social, and an economic cost that we haven't really even begun to look at with the same degree of rigor that we've looked at issues of environmental footprint of beef production, for example. I mean, we've, we've done life cycle analysis on beef. We haven't done life cycle analysis on the humans that are being fed by the food system, right? And, and, and I could go off on all that. I, I want to talk about your uh, debunking of game changers, because that was interesting. You put it out in kind of two flavors, as I recall. Huh, you, yeah. you had the one with the skits and then the just the science version. Um, and, you know, I watched Game Changers, and I know it's a load of male bovine fecal matter, but I didn't know some of the behind-the-scenes things that you pointed out in that debunking. Um, so are there some favorite ones of yours that come mm. off the top of your head or do uh, I can prompt you on a couple of them. Oh yeah. Well, I'll do one and then maybe you tell me your favorite, but I, I like the one, well, I didn't like it. I thought it was absurd. <laughs> they, well, they did all these bean burrito things. So we actually ended up doing a lot of bean burrito skits, which uh, I had fun. My, my sister's a, like a comedic actor and we had some fun with her and her friends. Everything was about bean burritos, but they did the bean burritos like, oh, okay, well, this guy ate a bean burrito and this guy, you know, then they ate it with meat and they had cloudy blood. And it was just such an absurd experiment. And it's, it's so obvious that they controlled everything. It's like their documentary. Of course, they can make it work how they want. And so, I, but I was kind of wondering how they did it because, you know, basically the cloudy blood, I mean, there's just a over, just a lot of fatty acids going through the blood at that time. And that would happen actually if you eat a whole bunch of carbs and fat together, right? Because then you you would have just a whole bunch of circulating, you know, fat. So we had a lot of people actually. We had Dr. Uh, Jamie Seaman did it. She's a great uh, OBGYN. Um, people probably heard her, Dr. Finn Fabulous. So she has you know access to a blood spinner. She did it. She ate like five eggs and you know some bacon, and not cloudy blood. You know. Then we had some other guys eat a whole ton of of 
I think it was lamb and some like heavy cream, not, not cloudy blood. And so then I realized, I think maybe it was Dave Feldman pointed it out to me. I was talking to him and he's like, you know, the, you got to add up the calories. And I kind of look at what was going on there. Basically their bean burritos had probably half the calories of the other one. So like I said, if, if you jack up a meal with tons of calories, including tons of refined carbs, especially like a burrito and plus a ton of meat and fat, then of course you're going to have basically energy oversupply. And then the bean burrito, it, it, it just, just had barely any fat in it and barely any energy in it. So it just wasn't an apples apples comparison. So it was fun to kind of break that down in a little, in a little segment. There, there was one man who was claiming to be this, you know, world record holder, you know, strong man who was carrying some device over a course. And it turned out that it wasn't quite what it was portrayed oh, to be. Oh, that one. That one was funny too, Patrick Baboumian. So they try to make it seem like he had this big world record of a carry, right? And he had this a yoke on and he carried a big heavy weight. So it turns out not only was that weight not the heaviest at all, it was nowhere near a record. It was, you know, maybe it was like the record um, by, you know, someone on this day in this state, but he also put it down. So they had some behind the scenes footage that I found on YouTube of him stopping maybe twice to rest and kept going, which is completely against the rules. And, you know, there actually is a real record of someone doing it and it was much heavier and they didn't set it down. So that was kind of funny. And and there's um, delicately put, there seems to be a great deal of fascination with erections. Um, yeah, that that well, it's kind of funny. Is that the most of the data I've seen is the opposite, right? That the vegan dieters have lower testosterone and more problems with erectile dysfunction. And so, of course, they cooked up some you know bogus experiment that on screen said this is not. A scientific experiment, which is funny, and their, their lawyers are smart, trying to warn people that uh, this is actually not science. This is just something we made up, and yeah, they they try to claim that after one magical bean burrito, you know, you would have like better erections over overnight compared to eating like a meat burrito. It, it's just absurd. Hmm. One other factor, which some of the, I think I remember this. Um, that I think you said it took five and a half years for them to make it or something. Yeah. And some of the people that were like sort of featured in early filming by the time it got to the end, they were no longer. Uh -huh. Um, yeah. So, uh, that guy, Tim Sheaf was a, yeah, a cast member, I guess you'd call it. Cause it was a theatrical production. He <laughs> was a sort of well-known uh, what is it called? Like parkour type of athlete, like oh, a movement yeah. athlete, right? And he, he's, he's great. He happens to be in the US and we filmed with him. It was really cool to film with him. And he told us the whole story of him just halfway through filming, realizing that he had terrible libido. Speaking of erections, he couldn't get an erection. He uh, was having all kinds of problems because of the vegan diet and pulled out. And they kept trying to force him back in. And they, you know, they were leaning on him in all these different ways. And he just said, no, I'm not in it. Take me out of it. And uh, yeah, he basically said he, he started eating. He had salmon uh, one night 
and uh, his, you know, all his, his libido came back and everything was fixed and working like it's supposed to. And he's just been very actually carnivore sort of base since I don't know how long it was a while back, but he was eating a, a very high meat diet and doing really well. Hmm. And there were some other comments, I forget which version, but people were talking about high level athletes who adopt a vegan diet and yet the 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 quality of their athletic performance doesn't maintain or i mean they they that their their performance suffers but the 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 message is you know uh, all pro whoever adopted this diet yeah well it's too bad that it took them so long for it to come out because uh, a lot of the athletes retired, got hurt, started doing poorly, uh, performance declined. We had uh, Chris Kruger and Dr. Sean Baker actually were really into that stuff and kind of tracking all those athletes. And it seemed like almost every single athlete was either injured or performance declined since going vegan. And uh, Sean Baker loves to post all about that on Instagram. Each time there's another vegan athlete, uh, they just get hurt. So mm -hmm. uh, it's not it's not a great plan. I I've spent some time with Dr. Kate Shanahan lately, uh, and she famously worked with the Lakers and helped change their diet to more ancestral diet and including bone broth and meats on the bone and more animal foods and all this type of stuff, especially for healing and protection from injuries and how it forms strong ligaments and all this collagen. And you, you need this animal source nutrition to have strong ligaments and collagen. And, you know, maybe you can get enough protein if you're chugging, you know, fake pea protein shakes, but still, um, is it the full amino acid profile? So, you know, there, there's a lot of sort of easy ways to, to prove why these athletes aren't doing as well once they go vegan. And maybe it does take a couple of years because they're super strong, amazing athletes and they have, you know, good, um, kind of foundation of nutrition. And then when they go vegan, it might take a while to deplete all those nutrient stores and start, you know, feeling those effects. But again, it, it's anecdotes backed with science. And I think it's kind of remarkable. You're dealing with human beings who one would think are, attuned to their body and their performance and yet you know this this belief can be powerful enough to kind of overcome a lot of that to the point where there's at least to others a noticeable decline in performance and and um health and and yet some people persist and you know, again, we have a population with genetic diversity, so perhaps there are some people that can do okay on that long term. One of the things we know, though, from a sustainability, again, that word has a lot of meanings, very few people sustain on a vegan diet, right? That they, they tend to go on and go off to varying degrees. Uh, I try to make a graphic about that, the endless revolving door. Of, of the vegan dieters. And then I had a stadium on the other side, I had a stadium of the more animal-based diets. I, I've never really heard of someone going towards the animal-based side and going back. 
I know there's some people who, yeah, go carnivore and then, and then slide back and don't do carnivore anymore, which is completely acceptable and understandable. Cause I, I don't think you should be doing long pure carnivore long-term anyway. I mean, you know, let's get some, you know, a little bit of something in there, but I, I just don't see the, the turnover. There's definitely, it's a one-way street and the vegans, that's a problem that, yeah, it's just this high turnover rate, but you never know. People never know about the fact that, oh, th these people were just vegan for a month or a week or a year, and then they weren't anymore because there's just always new ones popping up. And yeah, it's something about human nature too, is it, that they have this, that the belief structure can kind of outweigh like just real tangible problems. Hmm. Almost at some point, it becomes self-loathing of the species, right? That, that they're anti-human. Um, and, and so that then finds an outlet in things that, okay, it'll hurt humans, but they deserve it. There's too many of them, whatever, you know, there's, there's justification for that. And I, I, again, part of that argument comes with, we're no different than, except I don't know a lot of examples of self-loathing in other species. <laughs> you know, I, just, I think that's something unique about us. It is. Well, humans are weird. Humans are weird creatures. So interesting creatures. Yes, very, yes, very they are. <laughs> um, so, what you're, you've got all these projects going? Um, first of all, where can people learn more about what you're doing? Yeah. On my main site, sapien.org, that kind of links to everything. So I have the film, Food Lies. My podcast is Peak Human. I have a company called Nose of Tail where we're yeah, doing Nose of Tail meats and we send them out and we have a bunch of products. Um, I'm doing all, all kinds of smaller stuff, the Cows for Kids thing. If you want to support that, it, there's probably a few days left in the campaign. Uh, just, yeah, just find me on Food Lies. That's uh, my Instagram and my Twitter and Facebook. Excellent. Um, in your copious spare time, mm -hmm. what are you reading these days? Ooh, yeah. You know, I have a few books behind me uh, there. I, I just finished Defending Beef, the new version. So people may be familiar with Nicolette Han Nyman. And uh, she actually, I just interviewed her about the book and it's going to re-release. So she's added a bunch of new stuff to it. And I think she's great. She's a reformed vegetarian. <laughs> it's very interesting though, because she wrote the first book and she still wasn't eating meat. Although she wrote an entire book on defending beef and how great it is for the, your health and for the environment. It was just sort of this personal thing she couldn't overcome. So a little spoiler is she's eating a, a bunch of beef and feeling amazing. And she's, you know, just completely kind of gotten past that. And uh, we talked about that at the end of the interview. So that's uh, one of the new books I'm reading. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Brian, thank you for sharing your time. I know that it's it's taking away from all these other things that you're working on. I, I know a little bit about that, just a little. Um, <laughs> do you have any questions for me before I let you go? Oh, man, I don't know. I, I guess let's just, it's more of a, a comment that let's just keep spreading the word. I don't know what we can do more than we're doing. I, I'm glad that you've started this podcast and are starting to just 
spread the message more, but let's just keep doing it, rallying behind it, have more in-person events. Hopefully those will happen soon. I'm, I'm having some in Austin. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's just get the community together. Good. I agree. Let's carry on. Um, move forward, as we say. Um, thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate you joining us here. My guest today has been Brian Sanders, and you can find him at the links that will be posted in the show notes. Thank you so much, Brian. All right. Thanks, Peter. <laughs>